And welcome back. Our first question. I am so stumped and frankly so very discouraged about trying to help my father who is an SDA pastor. What can you say when he tells you that God is the source of death, that God is uh, that, that God is not a pushover, and, that, and the proof of that is in Genesis when God removed Adam and Eve from the Garden of Eden and the Tree of Life. I have shown the other sources, Romans 6.23, James 1.15, Galatians 6.8, uh, that sin is the source of death and, uh, and, and the wrath of God is letting go, but, he, but that has not helped. So, yeah, it can be quite frustrating. First thing would be to try to understand Step back and ask the question before you get into this. How do you understand God's law functions? I mean, that really is the basis. He sees this because he believes the fraud that God makes up rules and impose. And, and, if, and if God's law functions like human law, it is absolutely the logical conclusion that he is a righteous and holy judge and he does what's right. And if there's no inherent consequence, then he has to hold a rule breakers accountable. And he has to inflict punishments. And so this is really the root to it. Like God's law works like human law. He hasn't given that idea up. So working on any Bible text, you have to understand you're reading it through design law, he's reading it through imposed law, and you're both drawing different conclusions from it because you're actually seeing through two completely different systems of understanding. You have to go to that question first. Are you worshiping the creator? Asking, are you worshiping the creator? Or are you worshiping a creature? And how does the creator work? Creator builds reality. Can you speak reality in existence? And, and if you build reality, what kind of laws does that work? What does that, does reality work on? And so forth and so on. So this is where I would go with him. And then, and then watch his cognition, see the, the logical leaps, and he'll make them all done. People who hold the imposed law view, their systems are inherently contradictory and there are logical leaps all over the place and denial of evidence constantly. It's so easy to, to actually bring them to places where they corner themselves with their own words because they, they kind of, it, it's just not how reality works. It's fantasy. You can actually see the same type of cognitive questioning if you watch any of the reasonable people questioning some of the persons who are, are promoting the idea that there's no male or female. You just ask, what's a woman? And you ask them to, and you watch them just twist themselves in knots over this because they're trying to avoid objective reality. And you can't avoid objective reality. If you actually have come to understand God as creator and his laws of the, rea- uh, the laws of reality, it becomes very easy to, to, uh, to expose the, the um, fraudulence of the fake system of made-up rules. And understand, the imperial legal system of theology, it's fake. It's, it's, it's fantasy. God's kingdom does not work this way. Angels in heaven never had a law to honor their mothers and fathers. Or that sins would pass down three and four generations. They never had a law like that. You say, you say that, and they go, yeah, oh, wait, but, but the laws of the Ten Commandments, and this is many of the, it starts really messing with their head. They did have the law of love and truth and liberty. That's how reality and relationships function. So this is where I would go. Ideally, um, I enjoy a quiet room for study, but sometimes I put on white noise to drown out distractions. Recently, I found uh, noise counseling sounds like special binaural frequencies. Is there any value to the claim that these frequencies can make you smarter, et cetera? And he goes on to ask several other questions about that. I, don't, I haven't researched what you're referring to, your binaural frequencies, so I'm not sure what that is actually referring to. But there's absolute science behind you can affect the rhythms and, and frequencies of your brain waves what, what, uh, by the noises or sounds that you pipe into your brain at the time you're studying. If you were to pipe in 
Rap music, for instance, it's very dysrhythmic. It causes activation of stress circuits. Also, if you hit volume of any music, you can play Mozart at a volume that's loud enough. Just the volume can cause activation of your amygdala because it's so, it becomes volume painful, and that would actually disrupt any type of learning thing. So there's a volume element there as well. But uh, there are studies that have shown that um, certain um, types of music, I think Baroque music, improves um, the communication between the left and right hemispheres, and uh, during um, studying mathematics, people will be able to learn mathematics better if they're listening to Baroque music because it actually changes some of the the frequencies of the brain at that time. So there is science that this can affect. I haven't researched all the positive and all the elements and whether binaural uh, frequencies have a direct impact on positive or negative, um, but the theory behind it is sound, that, that that can happen. The, the, this, this story posted regarding the Bloom Church in Portland, Oregon. Anybody heard of the Bloom Church in Portland, Oregon? Uh, okay, so I, I, I reviewed it very quickly. I didn't read the whole thing. The Bloom Church is evidently a Seventh-day Adventist church recognized by the conference out there that used to meet on Sabbath but began to meet on Sundays for the purpose of evangelizing to the um, community that would not come to church on Sabbath. So they started worshiping on Sunday and having their services on Sunday to reach more people in the godless community is, is basically the, the principle behind it. And the, uh, and the, um, the question is, um, I would like to hear your thoughts about worshiping on Sunday um, to lead people to other important Bible truths. What, what do you think? Okay, and this is a, a great question because it immediately, what law lens are you looking through? If you're a rule-oriented person, then you believe that the, that the commandment, and most Adventists do, you believe that the commandment commands you to attend church services only one day in seven. Where does it say, thou shalt not have worship services except on Sabbath. Where does it say that in Scripture? Uh, in fact, during camp meeting, we, we're probably sinning six out of those seven days because we're having worship services all week long. Even on Sunday, they're having worship services. How could they possibly have worship services at camp meeting on Sunday? That would certainly be sin, wouldn't it? You're laughing because you're going, that's silly. There's nothing wrong with having worship services on Sunday. The Bible never condemns it. The Bible condemns desecrating Sabbath. And what does it mean to desecrate Sabbath? And that's a whole different question. The Bible never tells you. It doesn't. The Bible says that you should not work on Sabbath. Many people have focused on um, physical labor, the work for income. That certainly is included. I think the bigger truth has been avoided by most Adventists, and I think it is the work of salvation that we rest in Christ and we don't try to work out our own salvation with our own efforts and that the Sabbath reminds us that our salvation is through faith and that we rest in him and we come aside. And I think many Adventists, the the Sabbath becomes the hardest day of working out their salvation. I'm going to work really hard to be good this Sabbath. I'm going to work really hard not to do this, and I'm going to work really hard not to do that, and I'm going to work really hard to make sure that this is done before the sunset, and that's not done before the the sunset on the next day. And the Sabbath begins the day of the hardest work of the week, not for income, for righteousness. And they don't rest in the grace of Christ on Sabbath for many Adventists. I think it's, it's, it's a trick. You know, true Sabbath observance. What makes Sabbath special? Adventists want to say, well, the Sabbath is special because it memorializes creation. Well, certainly, it, it, there's that aspect of it, but they miss the bigger revelation. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days shalt thou labor and do all thy work. But the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord thy God. In it thou shalt not do any work. Thou, nor the son, nor the daughter, nor the manservant, nor the maidservant, nor the cattle, nor the strangers, nor the night gate. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth. Yes, it says it. 
to lead up to something. The significance of the Sabbath is not that he made something on six days. Those six days, he made something. He worked. He expended power. It's that six days, I expended power. Seventh day, which is different from the six days of seven power, is I rested. I stopped expending power. And understand, I did that in the middle of a war. I used power to create. I did not use power to force my way. I rested. I did not use power to make the angels believe. I did not use power to punish Lucifer in heaven. I did not use power to put down the rebellion. I did not use power to make Lucifer bow. bow. I rested from using power and left everyone free. The Sabbath is like a flag. It is an eternal symbol, sign, evidence of God's governing truth, love, and he gives us real freedom. We're free. And when you love the Sabbath, you rest in all God has done for you. And you practice those principles seven days a week. Is there anything wrong with having a church service on, Saturday, on Sunday? Of course not. Is there something wrong with keeping the Sabbath and wanting Jesus off the cross by sunset so you can be sure that you work really hard and don't do anything you shouldn't? You won't carry a handkerchief unless it's pinned to your thing because that would be work to carry it on Sabbath like the Jews did who crucified Christ. Yeah, there's something seriously wrong with that. So when you answer questions like this, it's ultimately not about the days. It's about the governments that the days represent and the gods that rule those governments. Do you worship a Roman dictator who declares one day to be holy? Do you worship a creator who builds and creates one day holy by his conduct and action to do something differently, and he governs through truth, love, and freedom? This is what these two days are about, the governments and the gods of the days, not the days themselves. Do you have a summary video of design law and gospel, uh, and gospel in three angels' messages we can share to others? If not, this is something... So putting several of these gospel in three angels' messages terms, uh, I don't think that... Uh, I did that um, in one of our Sabbath school classes where I remember I had a slide program and I went through that. But um, if you want the best video, I, I think, um, on, on these two videos, go to our website over there under... Uh, let's see... Do-do-do. Under the resources tab, you will find um, seminars. And if you go to the um, God in Your Brain seminar, the first two lectures in that seminar, the first one is God in Your Brain. And, and I think that's maybe one of the best places that I really show the, the law of love, the design law of love, and how that works. And I throw, show it through the, the evidentiary, the, the, the integrative evidence-based approach, Scripture, Science, experience, and multiple examples of this, and how the law of love is built into reality. I think it's shown there. And then the next lecture, designer or dictator, uh, I, I contrast the, the design law versus the imposal. So if you want a lecture or, or, or a video you can show people, those two would be really good. Also, though, go to our website and just on the search engine type in design law. If you do that, you will find a whole bunch of resources that those two videos don't actually pop immediately on there. But we have a design law little sharing track. We have a whole bunch of, uh, we have a, a design law 30-minute um, interview that I did uh, on the, on the uh, Tim Jennings show and so forth. So there's a lot of different resources if you, if you look at it that way. I've been, uh, I've been recommended for double jaw surgery. The process with pre- and post-operative orthodontics takes two years. 
If I thought I might live to 80, I would definitely do it. However, when I look at the schemes and plans of the world, I personally think Jesus is likely to return within the decade. This causes me to think the surgery might not be worth the pain and process. What are your thoughts on decision-making as we anticipate Christ's return and respond to what is happening in the world? This is one of those types of things that every person has to be persuaded in their own mind. I would never presume. I will tell you, I remember Graham Maxwell talking about how World War II was breaking upon the world. And, uh, and many of the Adventist Christians were saying, oh, this is a, look, the whole world is at war. This is the end. Jesus is coming soon. And some of them said, I'm not going to get married because we're warned it's better to not, not be married and so forth than have kids and small children and at the time when the Christ comes. And, and uh, Graham and his wife took the position. They were young at that time. They hadn't quite got married. They were about to. And they took the position that the Lord also says, occupy till I come. And, uh, and so you keep, we, we keep living and, and fulfilling our responsibilities in this life until Jesus comes again. I can't advise people uh, what they should do in long decisions like this, and I wouldn't presume because I have not been given a revelation. I certainly see the times. I would not argue with this. I, I think it's very highly likely and certainly possible that Jesus can be back. And I will say this, it's 100% certainty he could be back in the next 10 years. Events are all lined up. The dominoes could, I'm not saying he will be, I can't predict that, but, but it certainly could happen. Uh, so all these questions, everybody has to make their own mind up on them. Once the mark of the beast happens and the two groups are, of people are established, can either side be changed? Can someone mar- marked with the beast become inspired to become a Christian, and can someone who is sealed of God lose their faith? If the two groups are settled and those marked with the beast cannot be saved, what is the purpose of life here continuing on earth? So the first question, let's answer it first. That's what sealing actually means. Sealing is being so settled into the truth, both intellectually and spiritually, that you cannot be moved from it. Job is a good example. No tragedy, no accusation, no loss, no anything. He had questions. He didn't know all the answers, but he would not be shaken out of his loyalty to God. Even if God were to kill me, I would still trust him. Nothing could shake him from it, okay? And he was correct. Those in rebellion will be so hardened, and for them, they've actually destroyed the faculties, the conscience, if you will, that are sensitive to truth and love, and there's nothing in them that is capable of responding to more revelations of truth and love, so they're beyond salvation. So once people are settled either into the truth so that they can't be moved or into the lie and the rebellion so they can't be moved, no, they're not going to change camps. And that will be evidenced at the end of the thousand years, when the new Jerusalem comes down on earth and the wicked are raised and a period of time goes by where they build implements of war and the gates of the new Jerusalem are open the entire time and no one comes in. Even with the new Jerusalem and the saints and the angels and Jesus on the earth and they can see it, they still won't convert because they're so settled into the lie, nothing will change them. Okay, So no, so then what's the purpose of allowing time to go on? That question has an assumption in it. What's the assumption in the question? Pardon? About, about why time goes on. It does. There's a period of time, even after a thousand years, where they build implements of war. But, but even before that, after the sealing, there's a period of time that goes on before the appearing of Christ. Why? What law do we think is in operation? How does God win? 
by arbitrarily using power to make it happen in a certain way? Ali, Ali, in free, time's up, here I come. Or by allowing events to be achieved and lived out based on the choices of the free beings. They go on because people finish their lives based on their own choices. There's revelation happening. There's truth being revealed. God protects his individual saints. But when on planet Earth, I want you to imagine this scenario. You're in the kitchen cooking. And you're cooking, say, say cake, a casserole. It doesn't matter what you're cooking. But while you're cooking, one of your, we'll make, pick somebody. Somebody is throwing stuff into your bowl. They might be throwing salt. They might be throwing motor oil. They might be throwing little, little toys. Whatever. They're throwing stuff into your batter. Will you take credit for how that turns out? Or will you say, no, 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 this, is, this does not represent how well I can cook because there was somebody constantly messing with my batter. What, 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 wouldn't that be fair even to say? Has Lucifer, has Satan ever been free to govern this planet without interference from the Holy Spirit and God? Or has God always been interfering? He's always been interfering with Satan's rule. Look through all of Scripture. I will put enmity between you and the woman, right in Genesis, immediately. You have the uh, principalities and powers of darkness being held in check. We have angel armies holding them back, the Holy Spirit. But at the very end, after everyone's sealed, Satan gets a moment of time where God only only protects individuals and the, the planet he gets to have some governance over. What do you think that's going to reveal? How bad it can really get. It's all part of how God works. He doesn't declare it. He reveals it. This is how it is. So that's another reason why it goes on. I know you, I know you constantly get questions regarding the heavenly sanctuary. However, I, I've come across some Eastern Orthodox material on how Anselm of Canterbury regarded sin as a substantive debt that has to be paid for. With this in mind, I was wondering if this could be the founding confusion as it pertains to uh, to people actually concretely believing sin is carried across the heavenly sanctuary to be purged, as though it is uh, it is reco- records of sins that have to be accounted and paid for. Uh, so the question is, if this could be the founding confusion? No, uh, Aslam of Canterbury is suffering from the same lie that Lucifer told in heaven in the opening of the Great Controversy: every sin must meet its punishment. God's law is in, is imposed. Sin is doing bad stuff. Sin requires punishment. And these ideas are still part of that original lie that has come down through time that Satan has been telling all along. And this is just another manifestation of how that lie can, can, man, uh, can, can be presented in, in various theologies. But I don't think that is the or, origin or the founding of it. It's just he's suffering from the same legal way of trying to explain things that many people have been. Can you re- uh, please review Revelation 2.10? What does... Uh, what what does the you will only suffer for 10 days mean? So, so Revelation um, 2.10, I guess I should read it since they've asked us to. And it says, um, Revelation 
Do not be afraid of what you are about to suffer. I tell you, the devil will put some of you in prison to test you, and you will suffer persecution for 10 days. So the answer to that question is, there's a variety of interpretations. It's a symbolic book, and it, it, there's no conclusion that I've read that I have confidence is the certain conclusion. And in all Bible commentaries that I've read, they all have multiple different possibilities of what this could mean. It could mean a 10-year period of that literal uh, gr- um, group uh, during the uh, Diocletian Roman uh, rule in which there was a really 10-year period of severe persecution of the, of the saints. It could mean a prophetic uh, uh, so, so a, ten, a, a day for a year principle. Uh, I don't have an answer for that. Then the Lord said to Moses, the man must die. The whole assembly must stone him outside the camp. Uh, Numbers 15.35. God ordered the Israelites to commit murder. No, he did not. That's an interpretation. What's... what? What is the more accurate term what God instructed them to do? No. They were, not, they were not disciplined. The person who got stoned to death wasn't being disciplined. Discipline means to disciple or teach so that you can actually correct your behavior and live better. Okay? So this was a form of punishment to the one who was being stoned, but we would call this an execution. When the state executes somebody, the person who works for the state to do that does not get charged with murder. Isn't that right? The hangman is not called a murderer. So the idea that God told them to murder, that would be incorrect. That's an interpretation. You should ask the question, why did God tell them to be executioners? That's different. Um, We have Lot's wife uh, look back and and turn to a pillar of salt, Annas and Sapphira in the story of Acts, uh, they are, uh, if, if all these examples are not examples of God's punishment, what are they? Um, so forth. So this is a great question. It comes up all the time. What's the multiple assumptions that are built into this question? And so first off, I would tell the person who asked this question, you can't answer questions like this by selecting examples out of context. You have to read the whole scripture. If you don't understand the foundational problem of what sin is, if you don't understand what God's law is, if you don't understand how his government works, if you don't understand what is the source and what is the cause of death from what Scripture teaches, and the Scripture teaches that death comes from sin and that Satan is the source of death, if you don't understand those things, then you're going to misinterpret these types of things that's going on. First, and, 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 and when God warned about Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden that the day they eat, they will die, the, quote, punishment for sin, the wages of sin is death that the Bible talks about, what death is it talking about? Is it talking about the death that all the righteous who through history have died, like Daniel, who is sleeping in the grave waiting for the resurrection? Has Daniel died the death that's the punishment for sin? Or we say, no, Daniel's death was taken by Jesus, and Daniel doesn't have to die the death of sin because he's, he is a righteous man. Isn't that right? Don't we teach that? So which death, these people that you're pointing out here, the man who's stoned by his community, is he dying the death of sin or is he dying the same death that, that Daniel died, the death of sleep? And the Ananias and Sapphira, did they die the death of sin or did they die the death of sleep? And so this is the problem that people always do when they read these stories is they conflate or they mix two separate distinct types of death. There's the sleep death and all people be raised, either in the resurrection of the righteous or the resurrection of damnation, but they're still coming back to life. 
not the end. The death of sin is an eternal non-existence. That hasn't happened for everyone, any, for anyone. Additionally, those who want to believe God is a source of punishment, actually inflicting punishment for sin, in their own model, you say to them, and I'm saying to whoever emailed this or put this question in here, does God actually inflict the punishment for judgment, or doesn't he have to have judgment first? Well, judgment doesn't happen in anybody's version. Adventist version, 1844, most others, the great white throne sometime in the future. Judgment hasn't happened yet. So how can this be punishment for sin? This is the contradiction your system sets up. It doesn't work. It has to be some other reason going on here, and it's not punishment for sin. What is it? Genesis 3.15. What's happened in Genesis 3.15? After Adam sins, no human being can be saved except Messiah comes. The whole Old Testament narrative is the narrative of God working to bring the Messiah so that humanity can be saved from sin and Satan working to destroy the, the, human, the humanity as a whole prior to the flood. And then after the flood, when God chooses Abraham's family, he's actually only really interested in destroying the branch of the human family through which Messiah is going to come. And that's why the Bible focuses down from after Genesis 6, the whole world, it focuses immediately on Abraham's kids and not just... His kids, all his kids, we don't look at Ishmael's kids through Isaac, and we don't look uh, all the way down all all those kids. Um, We don't look at Esau's kids. We look only at Jacob's kids. We keep focusing down the whole story. Why? Because it's all about Messiah coming. And Satan is working to kill, to cut, to destroy that branch of the family. And if he can do that, nobody's saved. That's the whole Testament story. And so then why are these events happening? For the purpose of keeping open avenue for Messiah. That's why. And that all these people will be raised in the right resurrection. You could have put in Uzzah, touches the ark. He went to sleep. He'll be raised. All of them. And, and that Uzzah going into the grave was not punishment for sin. It was, if you, want to, if you want to say, it was discipline for David. That's what that was. Uh, this says, how do you understand vengeance is mine, says the Lord. Isaiah chapter 1. Isaiah chapter 1, what's the verse? Linda, you want to look it up for us? I can't. Uh, yeah. Okay. Getting ready for surgery. Oh, okay. So it's Isaiah 1. Let me see if I can look it up um, for us. If I can spell it. It's in Isaiah 1, I think it is, right? But I'm having trouble finding it at the moment. I don't remember the verse. It's just chapter 1. Revenge on my enemies, that verse? Yeah. Isaiah one twenty four. It says, "Therefore, the Lord, the Lord Almighty, the Mighty One of Israel, declares, I will get relief from my foes. I will avenge myself on my enemies. I will re- I will turn my hand against you. I will thoroughly notice what He does now: purge away your dross and remove all your impurities." The vengeance of God is against sin, like a doctor takes vengeance against an infection or cancer. A doctor will use a radiation knife to cut and destroy and burn out and attack cancer for the purpose of saving the person with cancer. The doctor never wants to hurt the patient. God is not taking vengeance against us. He's taking vengeance against sin. And that's what what it means. Mine is to repent. And if you allow God to take his vengeance, then he burns fear, selfishness, and rebellion out of the heart, and he turns enemies into friends. So God created man in his own image. In his image, he created he, him, male and female, he created them. 
So God attempted to create man in his own image, but God could not get it right. So individuals empowered themselves to be greater than God, changing what he messed up so that, so that uh, they could be what they ever deemed themselves to be right in their own eyes or something like this. I think this person is trying to be sarcastic and saying that uh, rather than accepting that God created male and female in his own image, that all these people are denying God's creation and trying to be their own mini-gods and create themselves in their own image. He says, thank you very much for your powerful Bible study. When you were explaining today about the shepherd killing his own sheep in the metaphor of the Jewish sacrificial system, you mentioned how disgusting that might be to him. My question is, how is it for the priests eating the meat? There's an object lesson from that. So for if, I, I, I did say it was God's design uh, for the shepherds to do that. The priests, however, became callous to it. They actually came to think that blood, they didn't have that conviction anymore. They actually thought the more you, the more you slaughtered, the, the better it was. And, and you read about this in Micah. Shall I, with what shall I come before the Lord? Shall I come with a, with a thousand rivers of ram? Uh, shall I you know, give my firstborn and so forth? So the more, the more they, I remember David, every so many feet was offering because they thought, uh, well, if one sacrifice was, was because they got twisted in their thinking that somehow it was affecting God. So I could affect him even more. Missed the whole point of it. And this is why the system had to be done away with. But the object lesson of eating the meat, Jesus uh, educates us on that um, in John chapter 6, verse 53. says, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no part with me. My flesh is real food. My blood is real drink. And it is in the flesh, Jesus is the word made flesh. So eating the flesh of Jesus symbolically the lamb, when they would eat that flesh, when you eat and it became bread and wine, when you eat bread or flesh, it becomes building blocks of your physical body. When you eat the word of God, those words of truth become building blocks to your understanding, your belief system. And then that wins you, it dispels, spells the lies and wins you to trust. And then when you're in trust, you open your heart and it says the, there's life in the blood. And the blood is also represented in the wine. And so when we're one to trust, we open our heart and the life of Jesus is reproduced in us through the Holy Spirit. So we get a new heart and right spirit, new motives, new desires, new energy, which is in the blood. We get a new life. And so the symbols of the system were designed to teach that we have to internalize the word of God and the truth that Jesus brought about God that wins us to trust. And then we have to receive the life of Christ that, uh, that he has wrought out for us and then we become new creatures in him. So that's what that means. Gracious Father in heaven, we thank you so much for all that you've provided for us in Jesus. And we just pray that you will uh, empower and enable us to take full advantage of all the divine resources that we can live victorious here and now and be lights in your world to take the true gospel message to the world that you might come soon. We pray in your holy name. Amen.